one to the next session of what is now our very well-established economics panel. I'm delighted as ever to welcome Ben Chu, who is economics editor of BBC Newsnight, Gemma Tetlow, who is the chief economist at the Institute for Government, uh, Meredith Crowley, who is a professor at the University of Cambridge, and more importantly, a senior fellow of the UK in a changing Europe, and Professor Jonathan Portes from King's College London, who is at King's College London, as I just said, and also a fellow of the UK in a changing Europe. We'll follow the usual format, which is to say we'll have a bit of a conversation amongst ourselves. I will keep an eye on your questions as they come in on Slido. Do please vote for the questions you want me to pose to the panel, as usually there are so many questions I never quite get to the bottom of the list. So if you really want me to ask something, then, then vote for it and it rises up my screen. Uh, but let's start, start off with a starter for 10, if we go in the order in which I introduced you, which is what do you make of the budget and what does it mean for the British economy going forward? A nice simple one there for you, Ben. Thanks, Anand. Well, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a revealing budget. I thought it was revealing politically and revealing economically uh, and quite surprising in some ways as well. I mean, when, when I talk about politically revealing, I think obviously the big economic story is that Rishi Sunak got a, quite a big windfall in the uh, from the Office for Budget Responsibility and the amount of uh, uh, additional um, money he would have to spend. And what was revealing is what he did with that. He didn't uh, bank it all in the form of lower borrowing than otherwise, giving himself more headroom against his fiscal rules. He didn't reverse some of the quite large tax cuts that he's implementing uh, on corporation tax and uh, national insurance, which are revealed earlier this year. Instead, he spent quite a lot of it, I think around half, on increasing public spending. In fact, reversing the cuts to departments' budgets that he'd, uh, relative to pre-pandemic, that he'd penciled in earlier. And that, that, that sort of shows you that when it comes to the crunch, actually the pressure to increase public spending was felt. And he, and he, what he didn't fight against that, well, he might have fought, fought against it in private, but he basically lost that fight. So that showed you something about this government, uh, about what its priorities are um, and what it will do when it really comes down to it. And it was just felt, I think that, um, it was the, the priority was uh, was increasing public spending. I think a lot of people were not were not expecting that, and a lot of people would not have expected the Tory government to be happy with public spending going up to forty two percent of or something of GDP, more than it was going into the crisis, and obviously taxation as well going up to thirty six percent. It's basically a, a party leadership which is comfortable with a larger state, um, and obviously a lot of. Conservative MPs are not happy with that if you speak to them, uh, but that's the way the leadership has uh, decided to uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 uh, use the public finances. So that's on the political side. On the economic side, I think it was revealing because it basically gave the lie to a lot of the um, rhetoric that's been coming from the government about how we were on an age of optimism. I mean, if you look at the, uh, entering a new age of optimism and rising living standards, et cetera, if you look, they were a pretty dire set of forecasts in terms of uh, economic growth, pretty sluggish, certainly on personal uh, household incomes and wages being crushed down by uh, the spike in inflation. So they were pretty downbeat. So I think, yes, I think it revealed a lot about the economy and it wasn't a pretty picture and it revealed quite a lot about the government's priorities as well. So I'll leave it there for now. Brilliant, thank you. Gemma. 
Thank you. Um, I think Ben's done a very good job of setting out the sort of big headlines. I agree with him that it was quite revealing uh, that Rishi Sunak chose to spend the windfall that he was handed rather than cutting taxes. Um, it's almost exactly the opposite George Osborne behaved when he was Chancellor. When George Osborne was given bad economic forecasts, he tended to hold down spending. And then when he was given good ones, he tended to cut taxes. It seems Rishi Sunak uh, does exactly the opposite. So handed bad forecasts, he puts up taxes and handed good ones. So far, he now seems to be uh, raising spending. Um, just a couple of other points that build on where Ben left off. Um, I think there was a bit of a mismatch uh, between the budget rhetoric and the reality of some of the forecasts and policies that went alongside them. Um, there was certainly a lot of talk in the speech about the economy rebounding strongly, a sort of age of optimism. Um, it's true that the forecasts are sort of for quite strong growth this year and next year, but then beyond that, we're going back to the sort of fairly sluggish one and a half percent real terms growth in the medium term, which is, is going to mean we're going to have slow growth in tax revenues, slow growth in household incomes. It's not going to feel like a real uh, age of rising prosperity for people, and it's going to mean continuing difficult choices about how do we finance public services and do people really feel like they are getting better generation on generation in their living standards. Um, in terms of the sort of short term outlook for people's household finances, um, I think the forecasts look quite difficult. Um, the OPR's forecast for wages show that they are barely going to keep pace with inflation uh, for the next couple of years. And that, coupled with the tax rises that were already announced before this budget, means that uh, many people will actually see their real incomes falling rather than rising over the next few years. Um, and despite sort of talk in the budget speech about help for uh, household incomes, um, there wasn't actually a lot of action in the budget. There was an increase in the national living wage and there were some changes to the taper for universal credit. The latter is a perfectly sensible policy, um, but it's not going to do a huge amount to help uh, most people's incomes. So uh, I will I'll leave it there. I should say politically as well that the universal credit move might not necessarily help the voters that the Tories want to hang on to. There was a very interesting piece in Politico by James Johnson this week about some focus groups he did after the budget where he was saying that the sort of the, the, the target Tory voters, some of those red wall seats were almost universally hostile to the budget because they saw people worse off than them being helped. They saw people better off than them getting away with it whilst their costs of living were going up and they were getting nothing. So it's quite, I mean, the politics of this, I think, are quite interesting, but uh, tempting though it is to turn from economics to politics for me, always. Uh, Meredith. Sure, so um, just continuing with, I guess, what Gemma said, I think that the disappointing thing is that we're not headed toward any kind of clear model of how we can specifically raise productivity. I mean, the, we've got these weak growth forecasts. And so I think one of the things, you know, there's been all, so what, I, what I was gonna say is a little bit about what, what, what is the Brexit dividend? Um, and what does the budget have to say about post-Brexit UK? And it says very little, um, to be frank. So the first thing, um, there's continued large amounts of funding for DIT to basically stay the course with what they're doing. So um, the same budget to continue to negotiate the free trade agreements they've been working on negotiating you know, since uh, 2016 with countries like New Zealand, Australia, and the USA. Um, and there's a lot of, I guess, money in the DIT budget 
to basically try to support exporters in the UK reaching foreign markets. So there's a lot of information about trying to make it easier for people who don't understand how to access foreign markets to access them. And similarly, there's support around the idea of inward FDI. Um, there's also a um, point around um, wanting to facilitate this inward investment, but um, and a lot of it, there's a lot of stuff about wanting to expand R&D investment, both with public funding, but also through tax credits to make it more uh, appealing to businesses. But overall, there's not a whole lot of, of substance. And actually, even within the discussion in the budget statement about what are they, what has changed since Brexit, there was a little bit about the new regulatory regime that's being contemplated. So in the summer, the government put out a statement about the new regulatory regime they're going to look at. That consultation closed in October, but basically it's just a change from the European system of a very high level of legal um, legislative approach to regulation to a more US, Australia, Canada style principles based regulation, but very, very little detail about what types of regulations would are they looking at changing to actually enhance productivity? So this just feeds back into what Gemma was saying about, we're looking at many years of continued low growth. So there's not here in the budget, in my view, a lot to help us understand how we're gonna deal with regulatory issues, what types of stimulus the government's really contemplating to actually push us into a higher productivity, higher growth trajectory. We'll stop there. Thank you. And there's a nice little segue there just to me to flag up to our divergence tracker that we started doing a few weeks ago, which tries to keep a, keep tabs on the regulatory divergence between the UK and the EU and what it might mean, which I think is going to be quite an interesting thing to follow over the months and years to come. But last but not least, Jonathan. Thanks. Um, so um, I think the sort of the, there's two interesting questions. What is this? you know, looking at the sort of medium and long-term prospects for the British economy after COVID and Brexit. What, um, if anything, have we learned? What has changed uh, uh, since, as it were, the start of the pandemic um, in what we think? Um, and so here there, there's, uh, and also uh, the British economy and also the, the shape of the state and the size of the state. Um, so we have sort of two uh, um, developments here. You know, we have what the OBR is telling us about how um, the economy has been affected by Brexit and COVID. And here, the message is pretty clear. Um, that is to say that COVID, in the OBR's view at least, and I think I tend to agree with this, I always thought that we would have something that looked pretty much like a V-shaped recovery and that given reasonably sensible policy, there wouldn't be too much in the way of long-term adverse impacts. That's what the OBR is, has belatedly come to say, which is that the long-term impact of COVID is actually pretty small. Um, they say it might knock 2% off GDP. Um, it might even be less than that, in my view. It's not clear to me that COVID has done very much in the way of long-term damage to the UK economy. Um, what about Brexit? Well, here the OBR is saying, um, again, nothing has changed since before COVID. We've had six months or so of data since Brexit, and that data is consistent with what the OBR and most other economists had said um, before Brexit happened, which is that Brexit's impact will be felt mainly through 
um, a reduction in trade flows um, uh, that uh, in particular reducing trade between the UK and the EU. That has been what's observed so far. Of course, um, it is still very early days. Um, we do not know the extent to which what's happened in the first six months will prove to be permanent. It could get worse, it could get better. But so far, at least, the data is consistent with, with what the OBR and what other economists had expected. Um, and uh, in fact, the only piece of news here, I think, really, is that far from being compensated by um, higher trade growth with the rest of the world, what we've seen so far is actually lower trade growth with the rest of the world. And we don't really know what that is and whether it relates to Brexit. It's not a COVID-specific impact because this is our trade relative to that of, for example, EU countries exporting to, to, to the rest of the world. Um, why are we doing so badly? Is it Brexit? Is it something else? We don't know, but it is UK-specific and we don't know whether it's permanent or temporary, but it's certainly not good news. Um, and it's those two impacts, the relatively small negative long-term impact of COVID and the somewhat larger long-term negative impact of Brexit, which lead the OBR to conclude we're on this low growth path. Um, and that is, I think, sort of frankly, just pretty depressing, uh, particularly given, as others have said, there isn't anything obvious in the budget as yet, which is going to change that trajectory. Uh, there is um, some extra money for transport and infrastructure. Um, but, and I think this is the key uh, sort of takeaway for me, um, is that this other famous OBR chart, which many of you will have seen, showing what we spend our money on and how the money, the, the, uh, um, how our money, what our money is spent on has shifted over the past 50 years, um, sh showing this very large growth in spending on the NHS, actually, surprisingly little growth in spending in pensions. So this idea that somehow it's the pensioners, it's triple lock, it's pensioner welfare that's taking all the extra money, this really just isn't true. It's just not supported in the data. Uh, um, it's a comforting myth uh, people are telling themselves. It is true the NHS and healthcare are getting a lot of extra money. Um, on the other side, um, as others have said, the Chancellor did spend, uh, uh, as it were, uh, a significant, you know, has increased spending. Um, where that increased spending is conspicuously not gone, however, is on education and skills. Um, and it is really, you know, uh, um, we don't know exactly what the magic ingredients are to boosting long-term productivity and growth. But I think you would find it hard to, to find any economist anywhere on the political spectrum who didn't think that education, skills, and human capital was going to be a large part of that mixture which leads you to higher long-term productivity growth. Um, and the fact that the government at the moment simply doesn't seem to be interested in that at all, um, I think is, is not a good sign. Um, you know, more buses, more motorways, more trains are undoubtedly, uh, uh, you know, in places which, which lack them at the moment are, are, are probably going to be good for productivity and growth, but without a strategy on education, skills and human capital, it just isn't going to work. So I'll end on that. Okay, I'll congratulate you all on doing a sterling job on anticipating and half answering my later questions, which is confusing me. Uh, just, just one thing before we, we, we move on, we've got a load of questions in, is one of the things a lot of commentators have said about this budget is, 
they assume that the chancellor intends to try and cut taxes as we approach another election. But what you've all said about growth, or what some of you said about growth and about the potential implications for tax revenue means that that's far from a foregone conclusion that he's going to have the headroom to do that, isn't it? Happy to. Um, I mean, yeah, he's so he actually by he used most of the upgrade in the medium term to kind of put some headroom against his fiscal rules. We've got about twenty five billion pounds of headroom against that fiscal rule in that year that we're expecting the election. So if the forecasts turn out to be exactly right, then there is money there to do some pre-election tax giveaways. But that kind of headroom is easily within the bounds of pretty modest adjustments in economic forecasts over a three-year period. So yes, there's not a huge amount of wiggle room there. And to what extent should we worry about the spectre of inflation? Give us some of the forecasts for next year. And what impact might this have on economic performance if inflation does start to rise four or five percent? Well, there's an interesting section in the uh, Office for Budget Responsibility's um, uh, document on this, where they uh, interestingly expose the idea. Well, they 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 push against the idea that inflation is necessarily bad for the public finances. They point out that if you have a wage-driven inflation in the UK, that actually quite good for the public finances because it brings in more tax revenues over the medium term because of fiscal drag and because people consume more and they get more in VAT. Uh, if it's imported inflation, that's, um, you know, that's cost push inflation from uh, the things we're, we're importing, uh, it's less good. But even over the medium term, interestingly, it evens out because, uh, because of higher receipts. So for the public finances, inflation uh, is a sort of, it depends where, where that inflation is coming from. But of course, that's not to say that inflation is good for the overall economy, certainly not for households, because wherever it comes from, higher inflation means lower living standards because that eats into those nominal pay increases. And there's all sorts of other negative effects from inflation as well. But obviously, whether the big debate, and we're going to see what the Bank of England does tomorrow on this, is uh, to what extent it's persistent or not. It's obviously going up quite sharply. Is it feeding into in inflationary expectations? That's the key things that the Bank of England wants to, to stop happening, because that's what would make it very damaging over the medium term. If it, anyone else want to come in? Just to add a small point to what Ben was saying there about the impact in this forecast of inflation on the public finances, the slightly odd thing was that actually part of the big increase in tax revenues in this budget was driven by inflation rather than real growth being any better. And that's partly because the government had pre-announced that a lot of tax thresholds, particularly income tax thresholds, were going to be frozen in cash terms. So more of our incomes is going to be dragged into those higher rates of tax. But exactly as Ben said, if that's good for the exchequer, then it's bad for someone and it's bad for us because we're paying a higher effective rate of tax on our income than we would otherwise have been expecting to. Interesting. Uh, I suppose the other thing we should touch on is what the OBR said about the medium term impact of Brexit on growth. Uh, they came out with a figure of 4%. Was there anything at all in this that you found surprising or worthy of comment, given that we all said it before? Meredith, did you? Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, economists haven't changed their forecasts, have they, on this? No, I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and neither has the OBR because the data that we have so far is consistent with uh, the consensus of forecasts. 
Um, so in terms of, you know, the, the only hard data we have so far is on trade. That data is very much consistent. You know, if, as I said, things could get better, they could get worse. You can argue that, okay, we'll adapt, uh, a trade will recover, or you can argue actually, um, this is just the beginning of a process in which supply, you know, the UK gets increasingly shut out of supply chains and increasingly regarded as a, uh, a peripheral rather than the core market. So trade, will, so, so it could go either way. But at the moment, we don't have good um, information that leads us to change our forecast in terms of trade. Um, the other thing, the OBR, you know, uh, so that so um, that stuff that's consistent with the data. I think the other thing that that probably is. You know, new in a negative sense, as it were, uh, dogs that did bark is that the OBR has always said, well, you know, of course, there are potentially benefits of Brexit because government could choose to do new different things outside that will lead to higher growth. But until those things come along um, uh, and we can quantify, see them and quantify them, um, we're not going to score them. Um, and so what the OBR has said is, well, OK, what has the government done new and different as a consequence of Brexit and what is it planning to do? Um, answer, uh, free ports. Uh, does that lead to a meaningful increase in growth? No, we think, um, and I think they reference our report here, we think that free ports will just displace a bit of economic activity from one part of the country to, the, uh, to another um, and will cost some money in tax revenues. But other than that, they won't have much economic impact. So we're going to ignore that from a macro perspective. Um, and we don't see any evidence that there's anything else much happening as a consequence of Brexit that will lead to increases in growth. So it's not that they've changed their view. It's that you know they're waiting for the government to come along and say, here are our new wonderful post-Brexit growth-enhancing initiatives. Um, and uh, so far, uh, these don't appear to have materialized. Good. I, I was just going to add one more thing, sort of following up on what Jonathan was saying about trade and then following up on what Ben was saying about inflation, right? So Ben, ben was pointing to there's two potential big sources of inflation. One is potentially this is coming driven by wages and demand for higher wages. The other one is we're importing it from abroad. The big fall in the pound was at the start of this whole Brexit process. And so I, you know, my sense is that most, a lot of that sort of exchange rate driven movement of increases in import prices came, hit us in the first 18 months after the referendum. Now, any further increases in prices of imports and imported inflation is going to be driven by some of the supply chain disruptions, which I think are temporary. I actually think where wage-driven inflation might be good for the exchequer in the short run, it's potentially much more damaging for the economy in the long run because a wage-driven inflation that goes with higher prices gives people no improvement in their real income. And then you could get into this spiraling effect. And I think the question is, where is the pressure from wages coming from? I think some of it at the low end of the distribution is coming from people who were on various work uh, supplement programs. So people who are getting credits when during the big Brexit shutdown, um, during the big COVID shutdowns, now have a different sense of what they're worth. And that has made, I think, people more concerned about whether they're getting fair wage. And if this type of view of people's own wage, this pressure keeps building, that can put you into a dangerous spiral with inflation. And so I think there's potentially a very, um, Sort of a long-term kind of problem we could face um, in that hand. The imported inflation, I think, is more of a temporary phenomenon that if that's the main source, that won't be persistent. 
I think the wage-driven inflation could have much more of a negative impact in the long run. So if adding, and um, I'm sure Jonathan's made this point a lot, that um, the, the wage figures at the moment are rising very fast on the headline figures, but they're very distorted because of the, uh, because of the uh, impact of the pandemic on a year ago. And those wages aren't being felt uniformly across all sectors. I mean, there's certain sectors like HGV drivers and, and certain, um, you know, uh, agricultural workers, which are seeing very strong meat processing workers, etc. But it's not a uniform thing yet. And the key is really, uh, what, what are our expectations going to change so that people start demanding across the board much mm-hmm. higher wage settlements? And if you see, that's what the Bank of England is terrified of and what it wants to nip in the bud. Whether they're right to be acting soon, uh, so soon now, as, as is widely expected in the markets at least, is another question. It was a curious thing at Tory conference to watch the Prime Minister essentially encouraging people to ask for higher wages, which I've not really seen before. But Gemma, did you want to come in on this at all, seeing as everyone else said? You don't have to, but I just thought I'd ask. No. I mean, uh, we might as well deal with it now, which is the sort of other side of, of, of Brexit, which is, and Jonathan touched on this, we've got free ports, but for all David Frost's rhetoric and the sort of review of retained EU, EU law, are we any closer to knowing what the regulatory benefits of Brexit might be? What other area, what, what are the areas in which the UK might hope to make the most of its newfound autonomy? Or are we still slightly in the dark? So I'll give one small example that was in the Chancellor's statement. There was, a, it was a little bit vague, but I think, um, and it's not highlighted, I think because the affected groups don't really think it's a very good change, but land use and agricultural land use Mm-hmm. Has is fundamentally changing. So DEFRA's new plan is to look at the use of all agricultural land and move it. They're running a pilot this year on sustainable agriculture, and next year they're going to look at something where they're going to start paying farmers, I think, to rewild land. And then there's also two years, another two years down the line, there's another program that's going to look at using agricultural land for things like creating new salt marshes, flood control, and things such as that. So I think that's something that wasn't feasible or easily feasible under the common mm-hmm. agricultural policy. And I think for humanity, it's probably good to, to rethink an ecological use of land. I think for many farmers, this could turn out to be a negative. And I think many farmers want to continue to use their land for, for agriculture. And they're not necessarily excited about the idea of a new DEFRA plan to start paying them to do different things with their land when they don't know how much they'll be paid and they don't know how it's really going to affect them. So I think that's a, a big fundamental change that you know brings the UK into a sort of greener world, you know, carbon sinking, et cetera. But um, it's only in one sector. I think regulation more generally, I think you know, the question is if you switch from a German style or French style regulatory regime where you have all of the detail of how you want to regulate a sector spelled out in excruciating legislation to what is proposed as a principles type regulatory environment in which you just kind of state in the legislation what the objective is and then you have a lot of flexibility for the regulator to achieve the objective through rulemaking. It, you know, that's what they do in other countries like the US, it works well, whether it's going to lead to huge dividends for business in the UK remains to be seen. Um, it might be that there is, you know, the, the proposal for how to think about creating new reg- regulation is going to be a common law proposal, it might be sort of more natural for British business people to think that that's an easier regime for them to work in. 
but in terms of specifics, like which sectors are affected by which legislate, you know, which regulations and which regulations are we going to scrap and replace by something that's more agile? That still hasn't been laid out clearly. And so at the moment, it's just we're shifting the regulatory framework, we think, um, but switching to a, a more, um, it, you know, in a sense, there's something a little strange. We're giving more power to the civil servants, essentially, taking some of the control away from directly the parliament, which will just state the principle or objective of regulation, and then give the details for how you implement it to civil servants. So, you know, there's a question of how much do business people think that that's going to better meet their needs. Um, it might work, um, but it might just be a different approach to achieving the same objective that's going to be roughly the same cost. But in, in terms of substance, it seems to me you're saying we're none the wiser. We're, we're, we're none the, the wiser. All we've got is a more clear statement of we're moving away from a sort of European style Napoleonic code, lay out every single decision and the length of this pipe and this effluent discharge in, in legislation and move that to a, we want cleaner water. We're going to achieve it in big goals and we're going to leave the regulators the discretion to make the changes more quickly. And also, you know, there is something to be said for maybe when you have a rulemaking based approach where regulators have a lot of power, you might be able to turn more quickly and you might be able to create bespoke rules for particular, mm -hmm. you know, factories and particular locations that achieve an objective, but do it in a more sensible way. Um, but, you know, you still, if you look at a country like the U.S. that has this style approach, you still have lots and lots of, of places where business people feel they're hitting their heads against a wall of trying to get faster, more agile, you know, um, rulemaking. The other thing is, um, if you make the law more principles-based with setting a big objective, you also create the possibility of much more time spent by businesses in litigating with the government over what these regulations are. So before we, you know, the frustration maybe under the EU is you were fighting with European bureaucrats and you were fighting European legislation. It could just be you move to a new regime and as an individual uh, firm, you are fighting the regulator. So the regulator makes a rule and then you go litigate it and say, this isn't what the legislation says. I don't want to do what the regulator tells me. So there's other ways in which you can introduce cost and slowness mm -hmm. into the system. And, and it's worth adding that when, you know, when you get divergence that affects traders, even if it's divergence because the EU has shifted and we haven't, that imposes costs because they're immediately confronted with two different sets of regulations to comply with. So even inactivity, uh, can lead to costs if the EU is moving with its regulatory thing. But one question for all of you, which I haven't heard discussed, well, I discussed it in passing with Jonathan in the office the other day, but Jonathan mentioned that there was very precious little about productivity in the budget. Uh, isn't it the case that economists think that if we're cutting trade, we're having a negative impact on productivity? If we're making trade harder with our nearest trading partner, doesn't that have implications? And can you explain why? So if, if, if it's more costly to trade with Germany and France, the price of inputs we import from Germany and France is going to go up. And that would cut into the revenue of a firm, not necessarily into the productivity. Um, the productivity is sort of the special effect a firm has after you account for the costs of all of those inputs. So certainly, um, 
you're throwing away resources on things like, you know, uh, time spent fighting with border control. Mm -hmm. So it makes the system less efficient in a sense because you're paying too much for the same inputs you could obtain okay. cheaply and easily before. Yeah. So that's the cost. That's still there. It's baked in the cake. The only hope against that is that, um, you know, the DIT has a lot of money to start to try to simplify the border management and to have a one-stop trading window. So yeah, we, we saw in Costa Rica, there's been studies of Costa Rica creating a one a one shop trading window um, when you used to have to get seven different permits to send something outside the country. They moved it to one, made them trade a whole lot more. But it's a little bit different in Britain because you had a zero stop trading system and now you've introduced a multi-stop trading system and now they're going to try to refine it down to one window. So- I mean, I, I, I think the- you know, the, the, the wider impacts of trade and productivity, you know, the, the sort of direct impact of trade, uh, of trading barriers on how rich we are is pretty obvious. If, you know, it is the standard theory of comparative advantage. Some, we do things better than some countries. They do things, some things better than us. If we can trade, we can take advantage of that. That simple. The question on productivity though, beyond that is whether being more open to trade makes you more productive, makes your firms actually, um, so not just a static comparative advantage, but makes your firms work better. And I think what most economists in the UK think is that the experience of EU membership has shown that in the, for the UK at least, that does work. Um, so our car industry became considerably more efficient when it was exposed to European competition. Um, so, you know, we ex prior to Brexit, we exported most of the cars we made here um, and we imported most of the ones we consumed here from elsewhere in Europe and to Europe. Um, so, you know, we were competing, uh, our car firms compete with European ones in a, in a larger market. Um, and the question is, to what extent, um, when you take away those competitive pressures, that, uh, that British firms just get become lazier, have less of an incentive to innovate than they would if they face competition from Europeans. Um, and and that, that I think is it's quite a lot harder to quantify than the direct impact of trade barriers. But I think experience in the UK over the, since EU membership suggests that, that it is at least that, uh, um, that it was, it did have some role in improving the efficiency of British industry over time. Whether that effect will work in reverse, we don't know yet. Okay, so we don't know if there's a reverse. That's that's interesting. But you would assume there is, would you? Um, I would I would assume there is. I mean, I would assume that that you know, if you suddenly, um, uh, if we suddenly said, for example, that uh, um, uh, UK academics couldn't get a job in European universities and and Europeans couldn't get a job here. Um, that would make uh, um, you and me just a bit lazier um, and a bit less likely to, uh, hard to imagine. Um, <laughs> hard to imagine, I know. Um, but it would just be a bit easier for us to think, well, you know, actually, uh, nobody else is, no, you know, the, the, the next job, I'm only going to have to beat out one or two people, not 10 or 11. Yeah, the, the, the market size that you have available for your merchandise is a direct directly impacts how much you're willing to invest, right? So as Johnson's saying, if, where are you going to build your next electric car factory? Do you want to build it in England 
or do you want to build it, you know, in Munich? And the question, you know, typically these large, enormous uh, investments require a certain minimum market size that you can easily access. And so as you shrink the size of the market immediately available to British businesses from 400 million, you know, to like 70, 80 million, you're going to have an immediate impact on how much you're willing to undertake these huge investments. And I think the government in the budget is trying to offset that by saying, oh, we'll give you a little bit of a, a tax break on R&D. But it, the market size effect sort of dominates your investment mm -hmm. decisions. And so... You know, that's another, it's a flip side, it's another aspect of what Jonathan's describing with the competitive pressures. If you don't yeah. have the market there, you, you can't really invest as much and can't innovate as much because the returns for that investment won't be as high. Gemma or Ben, do you want to, do you want to come in on this? Uh, just to say, it's probably worth putting this uh, projected losses, productivity losses from Brexit in the context of the catastrophic productivity losses since the financial crisis, is the point the OBRs made, you know, if, we, if we'd carried on growing productivity at the pre-financial crisis rate, we'd be, I think it was like 15 to 30% higher, depending on how you calculate the trend. So Brexit is, is smaller than that. And we don't really know the reasons for that massive drop off in productivity still. Uh, after 2008 so brexit makes it makes it harder but there was still an under a big underlying problem and that really underlines why we needed a really strong pro-productivity pro uh, plan in this budget which is as meredith was saying a lot of people uh, felt really wasn't there Come on. sorry did you ask me sorry only one small thing to say is that when the OBR sort of estimated what they thought the impact of Brexit was likely to be, they actually assumed there wouldn't be any of the sort of dynamic impact on productivity growth that Jonathan was talking about from the long run competitive pressures. So in a sense, their sort of 4% impact was somewhat cautious because it was mainly assuming the sort of static effects that um, smaller trading markets would have. Um, obviously, as time goes on, we're never really going to know whether the low rate of productivity growth that we see happening is because of Brexit or simply because of other factors that would anyway have been there in the UK economy. Which, which brings us nicely to a question from James Lynch, who's asking, how can you disentangle the economic impacts of Brexit versus those of COVID? Can you? I, mean, I think it's it's pretty hard. I guess there's there are some ways in which it is possible to try and get a handle on it because COVID has affected all of the world and Brexit has mostly affected us. So there is an extent to which you can look at how trade flows for the UK have changed differently from other countries, which is the sort of thing that um, Jonathan and Meredith were talking about before, and the extent to which we seem to have had a bigger drop off in trade flows, particularly with the EU. Um, sort of suggests that there is something going on with Brexit as well as um, with COVID there. I suppose I shouldn't miss a chance to push you in the direction of our thing Brexit or COVID, which is on our website where we try to sort of disentangle some of these effects. But uh, do any of you want to add to that or we can keep on going? There's a lot of questions I failed to get to as yet. We can keep going. Okay. Uh, a question from Helen Rennie-Smith which I think is about the Resolution Foundation figure. Is it, is it true that there is going to be a £3,000 increase in tax burden for the average household? It's a number we've seen bandied about. Chance to slag off another think tank if you want, but uh, what do we make of that number, if anything? 
I actually haven't tried to reverse engineer their number. I mean, their analysis is generally good, so I would. Uh, and the Treasury haven't that. denied it, as far as I'm aware. Not, not that I've seen. I mean, this Rishi Sunak in the last, obviously not this budget, but the previous two uh, did do some pretty large tax rises. So the broad picture of this having been a parliament of pretty sizable tax rises and spending increases is certainly broadly the picture. I mean, if you uh, if you add up the corporation taxes and the national insurance taxes and divide it by the population, I presume you get a pretty hefty figure. As I've not tried to re reverse engineer it either, but it, it's not that surprising in the context that these are historically large tax rises uh, over a year. I think. Hmm. Uh, there's a question from Alwyn Smith, which which feeds into something I was going to ask you about, which is how. COVID and Brexit impact on the levelling up agenda. I suppose I'd add to that mix, presumably what Jonathan was saying about productivity doesn't augur well for that levelling up agenda either, as it seems to me that productivity is one of the keys to levelling up, but maybe I'm mistaken. But what, what, is, what, what, what do we take away from this budget in terms of that levelling up agenda? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there was some relatively significant new investment in transport, um, particularly aimed at improving connectivity outside London and the South East. So you can take that as a sort of down payment on levelling up. But uh, I mean, you know, the fairly obvious problem with trying to answer your question is that we're still waiting for a reasonably coherent definition of what levelling up is. Um, and how would, we, how would we know it if we see it? Um, if uh, you know, if, if one of your measures, for example, was simply that uh, um, uh, that levelling up was uh, a reduction in the different the productivity differential between London, the southeast and the rest of the country, maybe COVID will help by hitting London and Brexit will help by hitting London, the southeast harder than the rest of the country. Um, that's one potential metric you, you could get at. Um, if uh, the uh, metric is that, you know, there is a greater dispersion of skilled jobs, which I think is some of what people are sort of grappling with, mm -hmm. um, then uh, again, you could argue that, that COVID um, and indeed more general technological forces over time um, will provide an additional push in that direction. Although I think it's too early to be sure and you could just as easily see that, that what happens is, is that London and the Southeast become, you know, that, that people still feel the need to live in the greater London Southeast area, if, even if not uh, in the, in the centre. Um, if you think that it, you know, if, if you define levelling up more broadly as reducing the structural inequalities in our society, um, whether those are of geography or of other things like uh, um, mm -hmm. ethnicity, gender and age, for example, um, then, to my mind, particularly given the lack of, of focus or investment on education and skills, it's hard to see that this gets us any closer. So maybe I could I could add because one of the things I was interested in looking at was what was going on with free ports and this question of you know free ports were sold as this big aspect of leveling up and so I went back and actually ONS over the um, summer but again in October did some analysis of foreign direct investment into the UK in terms of geographical dispersion. And one of the big things is, again, 
London dominates in terms of the location of inward FDI into the UK. But they also did a bit of a breakdown according to sector. And one of the things that comes out is other regions, Scotland, the West Midlands, Northwest, they get a fair amount of still inward FDI for manufacturing. So this is a kind of old story, but the parts of the UK where you know, we think of it somewhat depressed, there's still locations of significant amounts of foreign investment. So Britain receives you know, roughly, it's the house of one quarter of the US's outward FDI that goes into Europe, where Europe for the US is defined as including Russia, Turkey, you know, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's a huge destination. And you know, while a lot of this is going to London for financial services, it's still the case that you know, the amount of foreign FDI that's US controlled that's housed in, in the UK, it's risen much more you know, since 2017 than it, than it did for Germany or France. So there's a lot that the US, when you look at the FDI numbers, there's a lot of US FDI that goes to say the Netherlands and to Ireland, and that's because they're tax havens rather than for you know, actual um, investment. But it's still the case that you know, there's, there's the, the flows are coming. And so the question is sort of what are these kind of small initiatives like Freeport's going to do to change these massive flows. I think at the margin, they're not going to do a whole heck of a lot. And so there's yeah. a question of, if you look at where the money is going, it's already coming into the north of England. It's already coming into the West Midlands and has been for decades. So it might not be as much as people would like to have there, and it might not be enough to support a lot of jobs. But it's not the case that, you know, suddenly opening up a small Freeport with a slightly depreciated capital and, you know, enhanced R&D incentives is really going to cause big changes to these massive flows. So I think. Okay, uh, Gemma, did you want to come in on leveling up? I think Jonathan did a good job of summarizing it and merits as well, so I'll leave it there. Ben, did you want to? Yeah, just to add, I mean, uh, it was interesting. I think it was in the Tory conference speech when Boris Johnson was talking, trying to frame leveling up as a kind of Pareto improvement, i.e. so it helps some people, but it doesn't come at the expense of others. Well, if you buy the analysis that um, free ports just shift activity from somewhere else, that's not a Pareto improvement. I mean, I think broadly on levelling up, I think a lot of people in the sector are waiting for the white paper on, on this and also the devolution piece, which is wrapped up into it. Because as Jonathan said, there is more money for transport. There is more money uh, in many areas. But how much autonomy are places mayoralties, whatever local authority is going to have in spending it and dictating where it goes. Because for them, that's, let's speak to a lot of people, that's the key piece of levelling up. It's enabling people to decide what their own priorities are, and they think they'll spend it much better than the approach, which we've seen quite a lot of from this government over the past few years, which is a centralised pot, which places bid into. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's for them, that's that's not the right way to go for levelling up. So I think there's still a big space to be filled, not only, as Jonathan said, on the definition, but also the mechanics about how all this is going to work. And I suppose on those pots, there's two things to be said. The first is that those places with resources tend to be able to put better bids in and the places with economics teams in their, in their council chambers so they're able to do that more professionally. But secondly, the sums are relatively small. And so it's not it's not going to address the sort of structural issues that it's more the kind of uh, sugar rush leveling up that Michael Gove talks about rather than the structural leveling up that Jonathan mentioned. Then again, I have to say the sugar rush leveling up might be electorally effective in the short term, but we'll 
We'll wait and see. Now, I have to ask this question because Jill Rutter told me to ask you. I think she's gone off to play tennis, which is outrageous. But uh, what she wanted me to ask you uh, was whether or not net zero is going to necessitate tax rises, even though the Treasury claims it won't. But to, to reach our net zero target, isn't it going to cost us at some point? Yeah, well, if you, look, if you read the analysis of the Climate Change Committee and also sort of read between the lines of the OBR, they seem to me to be suggesting that the, uh, particularly the domestic heating decarbonisation piece is quite underfunded by the mm -hmm. Treasury. Uh, and they're suggesting that, you know, because if you look at uh, what the heat and building strategy is basically saying that the private sector will be encouraged, will, will basically provide all the financing for this and the government will do its job by a few subsidies, but mainly by setting regulation, encouraging innovation, to get these things to be cheaper. Um, and um, yeah, if you read the, the, the Climate Change Committee's response to that, and also what the uh, OBR was saying in response to the budget, there was today, perhaps that might not work. And if they want to meet this very, very ambitious target of 600,000 new heat pumps being installed a year by 2028, both those bodies suggesting they might need more public money in the mix. And uh, also interestingly, the Climate Change Committee was saying that they disagreed with the analysis of the Treasury that this should all be funded through tax. They're suggesting perhaps public borrowing should uh, mm -hmm. play a role in that because the benefits will accrue to uh, the future generations who will also be paying for the bill. So, I mean, you could argue that that's against the idea that we need tax rises. It could be put on the public borrowing bill. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a really uh, an area where there's not everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet, put it that way. Anyone else on this? We're confident we can get away without tax rises to fund our net zero ambitions. Well, um, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. Um, I was only going to say that there clearly is a cost to this, and as Ben was sort of alluding to, there's a question of do you meet that by raising taxes in whatever way that is, whether you raise that through taxes that is also targeted at trying to discourage carbon emissions, or whether you just raise taxes in general and then spend the money publicly to make the investments that are needed, or whether you rely much more heavily on regulation and forcing the private sector to make the changes and invest the money themselves uh, and do it that way. I think the real question is what do you, how do you decide to distribute the burden for those who can't afford to make those investments for themselves up front? Because um, a lot of these changes have the kind of characteristic of costing money up front, but then saving money in the longer term from being more efficient. Um, so how do you redistribute that burden? In the past, we've sort of done it through putting charges on electricity bills and then exempting lower income households from those. Um, you could do that much more explicitly and be much more redistributive using the tax system and explicitly offering grants to people who can't afford to make those investments themselves. Jonathan, did you want to? Uh, Gemma's pretty much said what I was going to say, which is that the interesting question here isn't really the taxes have to go up. It's um, how do you allocate the distribution of what will inevitably be very significant, large and politically massive distributional consequences, who gains, who loses, who pays, uh, and those are political choices. Excellent. There you go, Jill. Rubbish question. Uh, we've got a question here from Vicky Calais, which is quite a, 
it's a bit of an unfair question to ask you. But it's quite an interesting one. Should any of you have the answer? Which is, where does our the, the the UK state rank now in size compared to other European states in terms of uh, levels of public spending, say, or levels of taxation? Does anyone happen to have looked at the comparative data? No, Jonathan and I wrote a piece about this about three years ago, didn't we? About how the state looks quite European. Um, yes, I mean, we, we, we spend, you know, France is up there at the top, um, but I don't think our spending to GDP ratio is, is that different from, say, uh, um, Italy. Uh, you know, we, we have a recognizably European state. Uh, there's no doubt about that. We spend quite a bit of money on pensions and quite a bit of money on health, and uh, um, we finance that through taxation. So we look different from say the US where um, the uh, uh, private spending on healthcare is much higher. We look different from some countries in East Asia which have considerably lower levels of public spending and we're not up at the very top levels of public spending, um, although we're creeping up the table a bit. So yes, I think we are recognizably European. I don't think you would say that, that you know, we are in, in some, we have a dramatically different model of the sort of social market economy stroke welfare state to uh, um, to other large countries in Europe. Meredith, would you have gone along with that when you used to view the UK from, from Washington, that it's a recognizably European state, economically speaking? That the UK, well, it's, it, it is, I mean, compared to the US in the sense, you know, I think the big spending component is healthcare, right? And that here mm -hmm. there's this social safety net and a huge, you know, 7% of GDP, something like that is spent on healthcare in the UK and that's a public sector. In the US, we spend 17% of GDP on healthcare and it's in the private sector. So um, having a, you know, a large state is not necessarily a bad thing for some of these public spending elements. You can actually get worse outcomes by spending more money if you put things in the private sector. Um, you know, as we see, we get basically the same health outcomes in the United States as we get in Britain, but um, we spend a whole lot more money on it. Okay. Either and there is a there is a degree of sort of parochialism about this debate, which I think the question is rightly getting to, which is that you often hear that we will never be able to raise more than 36% of GDP in taxation right. because it's never been that high, you know, in all the years after the war. And you had Nick McPherson, former permanent secretary of the Sec uh, Treasury on Twitter saying he's betting that it will never get to this high, or at least it won't stay there if you deal. But as Jonathan said, if you look actually at the numbers, many European countries, successful economies, raise considerably more than us, considerably more than 36% in tax, uh, perfectly uh, without massive, you know, it, it's, it's accepted and they've been doing it for a long time. So uh, if you take the view that we're not perhaps that exceptional, especially now that uh, aging pressures are putting pressure for a larger uh, health service and uh, et cetera, then um, I think that is the right context to look at it rather than perhaps the last 40 years of UK history. Okay, interesting. The only um, small point to add to that, I mean, if you look at other European countries that raise more in taxes than we do, they tend to raise more from middle income people it's not that they raise a lot more from high income people um so i guess we've we have slightly shifted in that direction this year with the health and social care levy which was going across everyone's income so 
capital of public spending, then the lesson of other countries is that sort of everyone has to pay more. You can't rely on just getting that from the, the very rich and the very wealthy. I have to say, way back in the mid-1990s, when I got my first ever salary slip in France, I went stomping off to the administration office telling them they'd made a mistake, and they hadn't. But uh, anyway, there's a question here which I think is, well, it's for you, Jonathan, I suppose. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, have the panel members changed their views on the impact of EU migration on wages in the UK? Um, and is there a sector specificity to this? Is the second part? Uh, I mean, I think the the short answer is is not yet. Uh, the evidence uh, before uh, the referendum was that um, the impact of EU migration on wages was um, pretty minimal, direct impact at least, um, leaving aside indirect impacts via productivity and so on over the longer term. The direct impact was pretty small overall, but that. Um, in certain in, in low skill sectors, it might be uh, there might be some negative impacts, but even in specific sectors, those negative impacts would be quite small. Um, and I think you know, so so far, what have we seen? Well, you read a lot of headlines and press releases from recruitment agencies and so on. But the fact is that over the past six months, as um, the economy has reopened. Um, the biggest sector where EU migrants are, are employed, I think, or certainly where the big sector where a lot of the you know, pe people have said that, that shortages are, are, have arisen um, and EU migrants aren't coming back is the accommodation and food services sector. Um, that sector, wages have not recovered to pre-pandemic levels. And in the past six months, it, according to the ONS and HMRC data, real wages in those se that sector have actually been falling. Right. Mm. So that does not tell you that, um, that there was something radically wrong with our models. Now, it is almost certainly true that in the HDV sector, a combination of factors, um, both domestically generated and migration related, have led to a very acute shortage in a bottleneck sector. And there, I think we didn't have much evidence pre-pandemic, but common sense and theory would tell you that in the short term, there is likely to be a wage response, and almost certainly there has been a significant wage response in that sector. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that that's, as I said, I think that's what I would have expected in any sector, uh, in any small, important sector, where you saw a very sudden, abrupt shortage of labor for whatever reason, you'd expect a rise in prices. Uh, uh, sorry, a rise in wages, as well as a rise in prices. Um, but, uh, uh, and that is indeed what happened. We don't know how long it will last. We don't know how long the shortage will last. And we don't know how long the wage impacts will last. But in terms of the sort of what the economic evidence said about the overall impact on wages and the impact in large sectors, um, so far, I think uh, um, the data is consistent um, with what, uh, what we would have predicted. So, you know, that could change. Um, you know, it may be that over the next two or three years, we will see sustained, significant sustained wage rises in, say, the restaurant and food services sector. Um, but so far, we haven't. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. There's a couple of questions on sort of UK-EU relations that I wouldn't, I don't think, normally oppose to you. It's slightly outside our remit, but I'm going to pose the first one from Nick Lowe because he's asked it about 10 times and I'm starting to feel that he wants it asked. 
And I'm going to ask the other one because it's been voted to the top. Oh, incidentally, breaking news, India have won a cricket match, which is very good news for some of us. Uh, anyway, next question is, how should the government address the worsening trade imbalance in goods between the UK and the EU? Should the government worry about the trade imbalance in goods between the UK and the EU, I suppose, is the prior question. Meredith? Um, no. It shouldn't. No, I think this is a, a this question comes up continually where there's a concern about. So I, I think the question is if you're running a trade deficit against a partner, civic bilateral partner, um, what does that mean? It means you're getting an income inflow, an investment inflow from that bilateral partner. So there's capital flowing into the country. So that means that those foreigners think this is a good place to be investing. So if if Germans want to invest in Britain and you know we don't really want to invest in Germany, nothing wrong with that. Um, so I don't think this idea of trade deficits, we should have a zero trade balance with all of our trading partners. Um, the trade deficit is less driven by sort of micro things of the trade sector, more driven by macroeconomic environment and sort of what return you can get on savings. So in some sense, a, a deficit against a specific partner is a, a measure of how attractive the place is potentially for investment, or in Britain's case, it might be that it looks like it's on a little bit of a sale at the moment if you're trying to invest in assets here. I suppose a slightly facetious answer to the question would be that if the UK government put in place the checks it's meant to under the terms of the TCA on goods coming in from the EU, the trade balance might change a little bit. But does anyone else want to come in on this? I mean, it might, but uh, you know, as Meredith says, it's macro factors that drive it. You know, to, to put it even more simply than, than Meredith did, you know, um, I run a large deficit with Retros and a large surplus with King's College London. Um, Neither of those are in themselves a cause for concern. It would be if the overall deficit or surplus is what matters. Jonathan buys a lot of avocados and smashes them at home, I imagine. Either of the other two want to come in on this? All right, well, if this, I mean, this is the top voted question, and I'm not sure you're, it's going to be easy to answer, but... Well, um, no, I mean, I think, you know, what, what you know, we are worried about... Um, you know, we want, we are worried, you know, what is worrying us at the moment should be the fact that our trade overall is shrinking, both exports and imports. We are becoming a less open economy. We are becoming, um, to the extent that uh, um, we already had a trade deficit and this shrinkage is not helping, you know, uh, um, since exports are shrinking, just as imports isn't helping. Um, we are becoming, uh, if anything, less competitive. Our firms are doing less well in international markets. Um, all those are a major concern. Um, you know, if there are specific reasons why we are becoming, uh, other than Brexit, which is you know, a fact, that, that are, are meaning we are becoming specifically less competitive with EU markets for other things that we can do something about, um, then we should do something about that. But not because we're specifically worried about the headline deficit with Germany any more than we should be worried about the headline deficit with, uh, um, you know, with the, you know, the, the, we used to be worried about, say, the headline deficit with, with Saudi Arabia or wherever we import oil from, you know, that's, mm -hmm. it's just not in itself the, the problem. Um, and therefore, the solutions are not uh, to be, you know, there, there is a problem, but that isn't it. And the solutions are not to be found by focusing on bilateral deficits or surpluses. 
And I suppose given residual restrictions and the jury is still out when it comes to services trade, would that be fair to say? The full impacts of Brexit on services trade are yet to be felt. I think the jury's still out. I think we, I, I think we don't quite know. Okay. So David Glover's question is, what are the likely outcomes of a trade war with the EU? And I suppose for you lot, we can rephrase that slightly as, you know, economically, would imposition of tariffs and things like that have a massive impact that we should be concerned about now? So we could compare it to the US-China trade war. You know, hopefully we won't, it won't come to this. Um, but we could compare it to what happened with the US-China trade war because we saw some things that were what less expected. So one, um, the tariffs that the US imposed on Chinese goods, somewhat surprisingly to a lot of economists who study, um, you know, how much of cost increases pass through into consumer prices, pretty much the whole tariff increase passed through into prices for domestic American consumers. So prices went up a lot in America, but goods actually constitute a pretty small fraction of the total spending of most households. They spend a lot on services as well. So even though there was in some goods, you know, a 25% tariff imposed and this fully rose, raised the price of goods from China, you know, the impact was there. It was costly to American consumers, but not quite devastating because we don't, you know, I think for Britain being much smaller than the EU relative to say the US and China, which are more maybe less uneven in size, the damage could be much more significant because the UK is more deeply entrenched in European supply chains for its own production. So that could be much more devastating. You know, for example, the, the statement in the chancellor's budget about base was that they wanted to put a lot of future investment into things like aerospace. Mm. Our aerospace sector is deeply, deeply ingrained in Europe's. So you can't really build these things without parts coming in from Europe. And so if you're going to have a trade war disrupting that key sector that you have as a sort of idea that this could be one of our growth engines, that sounds pretty bad. Um, the idea that, um, yeah, it just, it just seems ludicrous that Britain could even contemplate getting involved in a trade war with, with Europe. It's, it's so self-harmful. Um, it was silly for the U.S. to do it. They've been trying to dig themselves out of it gently, and it's been really tricky for both the U.S. and China to de you know, de-escalate that. So you really don't want to go down that route. Does anyone else want to come in? I suppose, on I suppose Anand, um, the, it's a case of dust off your UK and EU no deal Brexit scenario uh, economic impact. Oh, we're there <laughs> for the uh, you know for the very worst case. I mean. Uh, you know, the TCA falls away, then you've basically got a similar scenario to the no deal. I mean, just a point about all these car companies in announcing new investment, that's on the basis that we had the TCA in place. I, it seems to me that that's a very large part of vulnerability for the UK. If the U, if the EU was to say, well, we're not going to uh, allow you to export cars to the, uh, to the EU, uh, a lot of that invest, the case for that investment would would, would collapse basically. Mm. So uh, you know whether it would be as bad as a no deal would obviously depend on what measures were taken. And I think there's some, uh, you know, it probably wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't go full on tariffs on everything. But that's the sort of the worst case scenario. And choose your place on the spectrum between that and where we are at the moment in terms of the economic damage. I would have thought. 
Anyone else want to? You don't have to if you don't want to. There's a couple of ones here on whether we should be concerned about a rise in interest rates and whether that will have any noticeable impacts. I mean, they're very, very low at the moment, it seems to me. So small rise, I wonder if it'll have that much impact. But is that a sign of things to come? Is it something to be worried about in the future, rising interest rates? I mean, my view is, here is that, that, you know, what the Bank of England does, as you say, whether it raises it from extraordinarily, almost impossibly low to just very, very low or even to very low, isn't going to make much difference. Um, you know, I think for me, what matter, you know, is, is that the, we have seen that long-term interest rates here tend to track long-term interest rates in the US. Um, that is to say, long-term interest rates are in some sense uh, set at a global level, not at a UK level. Um, and hence, if long-term interest rates go up in the US, uh, they will go up here. Um, and there have been occasions in the past when long-term interest rates in the US have risen quite a lot, quite sharply. If that happened here, I think the economic consequences would indeed be very significant. Um, but it's not something that is actually very much under, very much our, un, under our control, uh, um, you know, and, and, and certainly not under the control of the Bank of England and really doesn't have very much to do with what happens in the UK economy. Um, but if long-term interest rates in the US go up, they will go up globally, it will go up here, and that will have some pretty significant economic impacts, both on government finances, but also on household finances and the investment climate. Anyone else want to come in on this? I think the question is, why are they rising? You know, are they rising because productivity and growth are taking off? Therefore, uh, uh, the economy is stronger. Uh, that's, that's a good reason for interest rates to rise to more normal levels. Are they... On the other hand, are they rising because we've got stagflation here uh, and we've got inflation that needs to be taken under control? You know, that's a very bad context for rates to be rising. And then the other part of it is, are they rising because the Bank of England is worried about inflation and they're putting them up prematurely, which is if you look at the yield curve, uh, that is kind of what markets expect. They expect the bank is going to raise them and then have to cut them again because the economy won't be strong enough to bear them. That's a bad reason to, uh, well, that's a reason to fear them as well. So it's this question about what, what's the impact of interest rates is very context specific, it seems to me. Um, you have to specify what the circumstances are in which they're rising. Gemma, did you want to come in? You don't have to. I agree with what Jonathan and Ben said. I suppose the other point to sort of add, which Jonathan was alluding to, is that certainly with the sort of ultra low interest rates, it doesn't seem to have driven a big increase in investment, which would be the sort of classic economist textbook argument for why low interest rates are good because it encourages you to invest now. Um, it mostly seems to have driven, a, well, a large part of the impact seems to have been an increase in asset prices rather than driving up investment. So to that extent, some small increases above where we are may not be too economically damaging. Someone who took possession of the keys of his first house on Black Wednesday, I get very twitchy when I hear the word interest rate rise. It's going to stay with me forever. But uh, just to finish off then, I mean, chancellors always use fine rhetoric when they're presenting their budget. And Rishi Sunak announced that this was a budget for the post-COVID era. Was it? Is this recognisably ushering in a new era for us and a sort of post-pandemic era? Or is it more short term than that, do you think? 
you see the, the sort of the, other the outlines of a sort of post-COVID economic strategy in this? Or is it a budget for one year like every other? I mean, we've sort of touched on this, a lot of this already, but it, it didn't seem to me to be the blueprint for a new era of economic growth. There wasn't a strong sense of what this government sees as being its growth strategy. Hmm. Have big commitments on things like levelling up, and there were a lot of words around wanting rising living standards. There wasn't really a coherent picture for how you deliver that, either in terms of sort of regulating, incentivising the private sector or in terms of the actions that the government thinks it can take. Um, I think perhaps we have a set of economic forecasts that suggest we're leaving the downturn of the pandemic behind and bouncing back into recovery. But beyond that, it didn't feel to me like a blueprint for a new post-pandemic different world. Mm. Anyone else? Well, I do suspect it will, as I said at the start, it will be remembered as the sort of the Conservative Party coming to terms with the need for a larger state. Uh, a roundabout way of going towards it. Pandemic influenced that, but I think that is the significance of it. I totally agree with uh, Meredith and Gemma and Jonathan that you, there's not really much of a post-COVID, post-Brexit growth blueprint in there, but I do think it is quite significant that when the chips were down, when, when it came down to it, they said we want we'll 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 go for a bigger state and we won't really hold out beyond a few remarks by Rishi Sunak at the end, which was purely rhetoric really about wanting to cut taxes. I think if you judge them by their actions rather than their words, they do seem more comfortable with a larger state, and I think that is could well be historically significant. Weren't his last words though sort of hinting at we're going to tolerate this for the moment at the tail end of the pandemic? I mean. Isn't it we're going to tolerate a, a larger state for now? Wasn't there a slight smell of that? Yeah, but as I say, I think, you know, they, they often say these things. And I think if you've got to judge them by, the, by their actions yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than their words, I, that, that would be the point I would make about that. OK, brilliant. Well, assuming neither of you other two, we've reached our time now. Uh, as ever, I thought this was fascinating. So as ever, I'm going to take this opportunity to invite you back in a few months time to do this again, because I think this is a really, really good bunch of people and if you make economics intelligible to me then you're doing a very very good job indeed let me just finally say we've got our first research insights event on friday when we're trying to sort of get a bunch of people together to go into a bit more depth on their research than we usually do at our event so if you'd like to find out more about eu citizens in the uk uh tune in i think it's at midday on friday but you'll find details on our website but for the moment let me just thank meredith ben Gemma, and jonathan for taking the time to do this we look forward to seeing you again soon i hope and for the moment have a good evening everyone and take care goodbye <laughs>